Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart. And today, we're going to have a conversation about rich people, or actually, we're going to have a conversation about what people think of rich people. I have a guest on, Dr. Rainer Zeidelman, who's an historian and sociologist. He's also a world-renowned author, successful businessman, and real estate investor. Zeidelman's books are successful all around the world, especially in China, India, South Korea, and in 2016, he was awarded his second doctorate in sociology with his thesis on the psychology of the super-rich. His most recent book, which was published with the Cato Institute, is The Rich in Public Opinion, What We Think About When We Think About Wealth. And that's the topic of today's conversation. Rainer, thanks for being with us. Yes, nice to meet you. So when I uh, saw one of the blurbs on the back of your book, one of the endorsements, it said that this was Atlas Shrugged with data and footnotes, or Atlas Shrugged with numbers and footnotes. And I was like, I have to read this because I... (laughs) I know that Atlas Shrug has this very, Ayn Rand's characters are very much uh, made to be hated if they're rich, right? And so this is this is a book about what does what's actually happening in the real world, not just in the fictional world of Ayn Rand's mind, but what's happening in the real world with respect to the wealthy. And before we get into like the details, what motivated you to write a book on on this topic? I think there were several reasons. I had one experience. I, I'm I'm based here in Berlin. And on the 1st May, there was a demonstration with uh, posters, and uh, the posters claimed, kill your landlord, kill your landlord. And I'm a landlord myself, and I wondered what would be the reaction if somebody would show a poster like, kill, for example, black people or kill Mm -hmm. disabled people. Everyone would be rightly outraged about this. But with killing landlords, it seemed like, funny or there was another article in one of the most or the most important uh, German news magazine and the headline was uh, to hell with the rich people and at the same time I made this thought experiment what would have been the reaction with an article like uh, to hell with for example Jewish people or something everyone Mm -hmm. would be outraged and so Mm -hmm. I saw that uh, the rich are the only minority where it's allowed to speak uh, very negative and even with hate without having any negative consequences or even not not criticism from anyone else. And this was one motive. And the other motive is I uh, read a lot of books about prejudice research because I'm interested in this topic, prejudice and uh, stereotypes, not only about rich people. I read a lot of books about prejudice um, against even against poor people there there is research but prejudice against black people prejudice against uh, women against gay people but there were there are thousands of books and uh, and thousands of uh, essays or papers in in uh, scientific uh, journals but there was not one book about prejudice and stereotypes about rich people and this was the reason why i thought okay then i should write this book Mm -hmm. 
So with prejudices and stereotypes, I mean, those are two pretty common words that people have. And what's the relationship between them? And, and how do we think about, you know, when we evaluate a class of people, whether it's a rich middle class, even poor, or even, you know, some of the other traditional categories of people thinking in terms of, you know, race, gender, orientation, things like that. How do we think about prejudices and stereotypes in terms of like, what do they, what does that actually mean to think about those things? Usually it means that you generalize something from, from the behavior from one person to a group or that you judge behavior uh, from one person, other as you would have if it what was not a member uh, of this uh, group. And with rich people, for example, you see it now in the corona crisis. I don't know how it is in the United States, but in Germany, we have so many people who are who really hate Bill Gates because in mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, the corona crisis they are looking for scapegoats like they people do always in crisis. And for them here. A lot of people believe that that Bill Gates was the guy who made the coronavirus. He wanted to uh, earn a lot of money with a vaccine against uh, the coronavirus and so on. And this is an example because he's very rich and so he's a scapegoat for them. And this, this happened every time in history, especially in times of crisis or things that people couldn't explain by themselves. If you remember, for example, in the Middle Ages, or uh, there was uh, the, the, the plague, and then they, the people told witches they, they made the plague, or Jewish mm-hmm. people poisoned the well, and they were responsible. And so it's, it's always that people are looking to, uh, for, for scapegoats, especially in crisis. And this happens uh, again and again. And last time that it happened was in the financial crisis of 2008-2009, where you could read everywhere that uh, greedy bankers uh, are, mm-hmm. uh, are responsible for this crisis. Yeah, in America, what I've noticed, at least from my friends on the left, and many of them are Christians, um, that they are concerned that during the coronavirus pandemic, their bank accounts, so to speak, well, that's the way they would perceive it, but their their assets, their value has gone up while the rest of the country is burning and, uh, you know, people's bank accounts are dwindling or they're going bankrupt or, you know, they're, they're out of health care or something like that. And so, the, you know, their, their perception is the wealthier getting wealthier during this pandemic, and that's not right. That's, that's been, you know, the observation I've seen, at least in my corner of the world. Yes, but, but I can't understand because most rich people are invested in the stock market. And, uh, you know, in the, uh, uh, now the stock market uh, goes, goes up again. But uh, generally, if you look at the Dow Jones or the S&P, the S&P uh, lost. And it's not different for rich people and everyone else. Everyone who mm-hmm. is invested in stocks got losses as well in the corona yeah. crisis now it's getting a little bit better but and and uh, i think as well for people who are invested in real estate especially in retail real estate or office real estate because i think they will be affected uh, through the crisis as as well yeah. yeah yeah and and it's also you know what it's been like 3 months now it's it's 4 months it's a little too early to tell uh per se exactly what what the ramifications are going to be long term uh, so, you know, it, it might be a little unfair, you know, to, to assess things this soon. 
I, I think Asian people are as well scapegoats now for the corona crisis in the United mm, States. Mm-hmm. Isn't it true? I, I heard it that a lot of Asian people were attacked, and I think this is, has also something to do with uh, stereotypes against successful or prejudice against successful people. Because if you see the, I, 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 I'm sure you know, the income pyramid in United States is uh, black people, Latino people, white people, and then Asian people. Asian people mm-hmm. earning 40% more than white people and are more successful in university. And I appreciate, I, I like uh, Asian people, but there are other people, envious people. Uh, uh, for them, they are scapegoats, and as well, especially in the Corona crisis, they were they were attacked. And I think uh, uh, this is a perfect uh, example. What happens? There were prejudices before against mm-hmm. Asian people. I I read a pay, uh, an essay in a uh, scientific psychological journal. It was twelve years ago about uh, prejudice against. Uh, Asian Americans. So this is not a new topic, but in a crisis, then when people look for scapegoats, goats, this latent uh, prejudices are became stronger then, and and words can become deeds. This is what people forget always. For example, some people uh, ask me, why do you write about prejudice against rich people? They have a good life. Uh, They are much Mm -hmm. better off than other minorities if you compare it with, for example, black people or other minorities. Uh, What what is it about uh, writing about prejudice against rich people? And I I had to, to tell them that in the 20th century, very often rich people were killed and were uh, had to leave their country. And so if you think what uh, happens with the Kuliks, for example, in the, uh, in the time of uh, uh, communism in, in Russia, uh, mm-hmm. so- something like uh, 60,000, 600,000 uh, Kuliks were killed as uh, rich peasants or farmers. And the same happened in, in China and it happened in uh, uh, with a red mayor in in Kambodja and other countries, so sometimes people forget about it. That uh, that sure today rich they have a good life and it's good to be rich, but on the other hand, this can change in other circumstances. And so my book is a kind of warning: what can happen because this was was often happened in history. First, there were stereotypes and negative prejudices against the minority, and then it when when it came to a crisis, then words became deeds. And this is a kind of warning. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing in your book that I kind of noticed early on when you talk, we're talking about prejudices is that I think there's this, you were kind of mentioning that there's this common perception that if somebody just got to know an individual Chinese person or an individual wealthy person or an individual, any group that they think sort of ill of or not very positively of, that that would sort of overcome the prejudice that, you know, that they're just, you know, it's just an error of, well, they just don't know the person or they don't know many people of that particular, you know, group that we're talking about. Yes. And you say it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not, it's not a matter of, you know, the, the antidote isn't necessarily um, being more knowledgeable. Um, we had one question that was only asked in the German poll. All other questions were asked in four different uh, countries. And uh, we asked people who knew a millionaire in person, what do you think about the millionaire that you know? And we gave them a list with uh, personality traits. 
And the answer was uh, 71% said industrious, 71% intelligent, 58% imaginative, 47% optimistic, 45% visionary. So and now the hard thing, the contrast. If we asked the population in general, and most of them don't know a millionaire in person, uh, which of the following are most likely to apply to rich people, and we gave them the same list with traits. The answer was in Germany, 62% self-centered, 56% materialistic, 50% ruthless, 49% greedy, and 43% arrogant. So you see, it's a, it's a contrast whether you know people uh, or rich people in person mm-hmm. or whether you don't know them. And the answers are quite different there. Yeah, well, I mean... I wasn't surprised by that because I think people who know rich people actually realize that that's not <laughs> the stereotypes aren't exactly aren't exactly correct. So let let's jump into the the actual like crux of the matter here. How unpopular are the rich? I mean, how bad is it? I think you have to differentiate between countries, and this was the first time mm-hmm. uh, that uh, uh, international study was conducted. It, it has never been; uh, no one had ever uh, done it before with the same questions in every country with exception of this one question, but this were dozens of questions. And we had the same questions in United States, France, UK, and Germany. And then we calculated something that we called social envy coefficient. And what does it mean? Uh, we can measure with this the relation between envious and non-envious in every countries, because we saw as a result of our questions that there are two different groups, social envious and non-envious. And in the middle, we called them the ambivalent people. And then we could calculate the ratio between both of these groups. And the higher the number is, the more envious is a country. And so the highest number was in France, with people being most envious, it was 1.21. Then came Germany with 0.97, and then was United States with 0.42, and UK with 0.37. So it, it means to sum up that people in Germany and in France are much more envious, have a much more negative attitude toward rich people than people in UK and United States. And people in UK and United States have much more in common then, for example, have Britons with uh, here Germany or France. So it's it's different for every country. And the the second result is it depends on the age very much in the United States. We have a huge difference in the answers of older Americans and younger Americans. With being the younger Americans much much more negative toward rich people than uh, uh, older Americans. And, um, and I think this is, a, uh, I think it's not so surprising if you, if you see the big uh, support that we had, for example, for uh, Bernie Sanders uh, with um, mm-hmm. uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of young people. But uh, I can give you here one, one example for this. We asked the Americans, to what extent do you agree with the following statement? 
um, the more the rich have, the less there is for the poor. This is an example of what I call zero-sum thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, on, on average in America, 34% of the people agreed with the zero-sum thinking. So as, as mentioned before, people in the United States and UK are less envious as they are in France and Germany. But there's one exception, and this is with young Americans, because there's a huge difference between young and older Americans. And uh, I give you one example. We had this here, the following statement. The statement was, rich people are good at earning money, but they are not usually decent people. And we asked uh, the people whether they agree or disagree with the statement. And um, for younger Americans, that means Americans between 18 and 29 years, under 30, 40% agreed with the statement. For older Americans, only 15% agreed with the statement. And then uh, um, the numbers, how many people disagreed, only 23% of the young Americans under 30 disagreed with the statement that rich people are usually decent people. But for older Americans, 60 and older, 50% disagreed with the statement. And so it was with all other statements, for example, with this zero-sum belief statement. We had the statement, to what extent do you agree with the following statement, the more the rich have, the less there is for the poor. On the average, 34% of Americans agreed with the statement, but with younger people, it was 45% agreed, and 29% disagreed. The rest of them was not like, like neutral to the statement. And if you compare it with older people, 53% disagreed and only 24% agreed from people uh, older than 60. And this was not only with these two questions, but this was with all other questions that... Uh, that younger people are much more critical in America against the rich. And this was not so in Europe. Uh, on the contrary, in Germany and in France, there was not such a big contrast between younger and older. But if there, if there was a contrast, it was the other way around, that uh, younger people were a little bit more positive about rich people than older people in France and in uh, Germany. And in UK, we had, I think, there was no no difference with the age group. So it's it's only in the United States that you have such an extreme negative attitude of young people against rich people. So I was actually a little bit shocked by that statistic because I feel like everybody has zero-sum thinking. And so that number is actually a little bit low for me. But, um, you know, I... I'm sort of exaggerating or comparing to my exaggerated, you know, concept of what people what people think. You know, I can imagine our listeners listening to us talk about the rich here, and we're about halfway through this episode. And what is it that qualifies somebody as rich? You know, I know that that to some extent is a perceptual issue. You know, like you know, some people think a lot of people are rich. You know, everybody that lives, most people that live in the United States and Europe are rich by global standards. But that has a, that's going to need to be sort of spelled out a little bit with the way that you do research. Um, so where do you, where do you have that in, in terms of your study and research? Uh, um, uh, absolutely. It's a good question because 
in the past, there were a lot of polls about rich people and they didn't define uh, what rich means. But we know from other studies that everyone has a quite different view what's rich people. For mm -hmm. example, there, there was a, a poll in Germany and we they, they asked people who is rich and the range was for, from earning, uh, I translate now in, in dollar, from, from earning Three three thousand dollars a month to having more than one hundred billion as the minimum to be rich. So it's far so spread, and so everyone has uh, another idea what rich means. And for our study, uh, to avoid this, that uh, that everyone s speaks about the same word, but uh, uh, it, it means something quite different for them. We we gave uh, to our interviewers a definition, and we said. This is someone uh, who has uh, one million dollar in addition to his own residence. So, if if someone owns an own apartment or an own house, yes. Uh, in addition to this, he has to have at least one million. Mm. This was our definition. Okay. So then, why do people think? What what are, what does the data say about why people think that people are wealthy? I mean, there's a number of ways that we know people can become wealthy. They can simply earn it through, you know, innovation, entrepreneurship. They can inherit it. What does the data say about how the public thinks about how the wealthy become wealthy? Yes, there, again, it's the difference between people who are uh, this group that I call envious and not envious. Envious people think usually people become rich because uh, they are tax sheets, because uh, injustice in society or because uh, there are only hairs who become rich, there are not so many self-made people or because they are dishonest and uh, all this stuff. And uh, other people who are not envious, they think more it's about uh, hard work or being intelligent. But but I think that both groups are, are, are wrong. Even I think the people who have a positive attitude toward rich people and they think that hard work is the real reason why someone becomes rich. I don't agree. Sure, we know from uh, research that rich people work longer than, for example, from the uh, middle class. Uh, there, there, were, uh, there was research in Germany and the result was that rich people, they work 30% longer than people from the middle class. But to work 30% longer can't explain the difference why someone has net worth that is maybe 100 or even 1,000 times or more uh, uh, bigger as from another person. And I think that uh, as well, people who like rich people and people who don't like rich people, that in a lot of ways they are wrong why people become rich. If you would ask me, why people become rich. I would uh, tell you, most people became rich as entrepreneurs. That is true if you look at the at the list, uh, at the Forbes list of the richest uh, people in the world or richest Americans, and you see if they haven't uh, got it from their uh, father or, or, or grandfather uh, as, as heirs, then they are all entrepreneurs. And they became rich because they had good ideas. They were creative. This is why Jeff Bezos became the richest man in the world. Did he work 
maybe uh, 100 times or 1,000 times longer as a taxi driver. No, I don't believe so. There are a lot of hardworking uh, taxi drivers. So I would admit uh, maybe a taxi driver, a lot of them in New York, they work uh, as long and as hard as Jeff Bezos does. So this is not the explanation. The explanation is that he had great idea with Amazon and Bill Gates had great ideas with Microsoft and Larry Page and Sergey Prin had a great idea with Google and uh, Mark Zuckerberg had a great idea with uh, Facebook or uh, yes, you see, with uh, uh, I think the the beginning of a big fortune and of wealth is usually uh, a great idea. Sure, hard work is another thing, but I think that people who like the rich and who dislike the rich, most of them don't understand uh, what is the most important thing: how to become rich. And in my opinion, it's to have a, a great idea. Well, I would I would certainly agree, and of course, adding to that, you know, having a great idea and, and being able to bring that to to the good of others, you know, you did some, you did, you were talking about your research on envy, and you have a scale of those who are envious and non envious, and obviously, you can't ask somebody, are you envious, because they're going to say no. But what did your research uncover? Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, you you can't ask these people directly. Uh, I do it sometimes when I have uh, my lectures and I ask people if I have their uh, scale from one, that means I'm uh, not envious at all, and 10, that means I'm extremely envious, and I ask who is between one and three, uh, uh, almost everyone raises hand, and if I ask who is between <laughs> seven and 10, uh, almost no one raises hand. And so this is, we, we know it from psychological research that people uh, don't admit that they are envious. They don't admit it for themselves. Why? Because if you uh, admit being en envious, then you admit that the other person has something that you want to have, that you're the science. Then the next question is, why don't you have it? And sometimes this is uh, not very good for your self-confidence to ask this question. But so we had an indirect approach uh, to, to look whether people are envious or not. And we had a very narrow definition of uh, envious uh, people. And... Um, so some, sometimes people speak about they um, distinguish between something they called uh, a positive or a good envy and a negative. But uh, we had a very na narrow definition. And this means social envious are not primarily motivated uh, by the desire to improve their own situation in order to close the gap between themselves and the rich. But they are more uh, concerned with making the life worse for the rich and uh, take something away from them. And now the most important thing, even if this does not create any personal benefits for them. I, I will give you an uh, uh, example for one of the questions. We asked people, for example, we gave them the following statement. I think it would be fair to increase taxes substantially for millionaires, even if I would not benefit from it personally. And for example, in Germany, 65% uh, agreed. United States, 47% agreed. France, 61% agreed. Or we had another statement. This was, I would favor drastically reducing managers' salaries and redistributing the money more evenly among their employees, even if that would mean that the employees would 
get only a few more dollars per month. So it's the same principle, you know, to make mm -hmm. the situation worse for one. But I have no advantage, only yeah. two or three dollars. And for example, in Germany, 46% agreed. In the United States, 31% agreed. In France, the most envious nation, 54% agreed with the statement. And the last example I want to give you, it's about schadenfreude. Uh, we we asked the people, when I hear about a millionaire who made a risky business decision and lost a lot of money because of it, I think it serves him right. And we asked people whether they agree or disagree with the statement. And now, I don't know whether you know that the word schadenfreude is a German word. It's from German in English, yes, the same mm -hmm. word, but it comes from Germany. And now you know why, because Germany was the only nation where we had more people, 40% who agreed with the statement than disagreed. 40% agreed, 37% disagreed. In the United States, it was 20, 28% agreed and 29% disagreed. And if people answered positive to one of these uh, statements or if they supported one of these statements, uh, th then we, we didn't say he's envious, but if he supported a few of these statements uh, or whether he rejected all of these treatments, statements, this made a big difference uh, as well with all other questions. You know, we had a dozen of questions, but we mm -hmm. found out that how people answer these three questions makes a difference with all other statements. For example, with uh, zero-sum thinking and uh, how they judge uh, personality traits of uh, of rich people. And so, so in the end, we have these three groups, the envious, the non-envious, and the ambivalent uh, people. And I think I spoke before about the social envy coefficient that we calculated uh, yeah. as a result of this. Yeah, well, you know, and that envy reminds me of, like, I don't know, it just seems fundamentally unchristian and just almost despicable for somebody to say, I simply want somebody that I envy their stuff. Now, they're not going to say it in that way, but they're instead of envying what they have as if, like, I want that, they're basically saying, I just don't want them to have it. Like, there's no good reason for them not to have it. But but I just want that anyway. Like, it just seems fundamentally hateful. Um, now, obviously, people, you know, they're going to justify it through things like, well, we need to have equitable systems and, you know, inequality is a problem, etc. But it just, in terms of an attitude, it just doesn't seem very charitable at all to consider anybody, you know, in, in that way and just say, I just don't want them to have what they have. You know, it's not like, oh, good for them. I hope I can get that someday or I hope more people can get that someday. They're just, you know, Absolutely. Spe speaking terribly of other people. So one thing that I've I've actually had this thought while re I read, I read um, uh, a little bit before I read your book, I read uh, Capitalism and the Jews by Jerry Z. Muller. And it occurred to me as I was, you know, as you talked about scapegoating in your book, uh, which honestly, I didn't know that that would actually be one of the topics, and I'm really glad that it was. There, there's a little bit of like maybe there's a silver lining in that the rich are somewhat scapegoated and maybe demonized. In that public attitudes used to be between uh, about groups that were of a certain category, you know, something like anti-Semitism or racial differences or ethnic differences, and maybe there's like in terms of prejudice against people you know, being prejudiced against the rich really, I mean, is it 
is it sort of like the new anti-Semitism? So it's probably not as bad because it's not going to lead to such um, atrocities. Or is, is, am I am I kind of like giving too much credit to the evolution of prejudice? Um, I, I have some, you know, I, I wrote my first doctoral uh, thesis about uh, Adolf Hitler's. Uh, economic and uh, social uh, thought. This was the topic of my uh, first mm -hmm. uh, doctoral thesis is as well in, in English, Hitler, the policy of seduction. And here in my new book, I, I have a quote, uh, for example, from uh, Adolf Hitler. Maybe you would be surprised if you hear this. For example, Hitler declared in 1933 that uh, if he had turned against communism, and now quote, uh, then it was not because of the 100,000 bourgeois. It can be of complete indifference whether they go under or not. And he said to Bolshevism, Bolshevism has simply removed its creatures because they were worthless for mankind, only burdens for their nation. The bees also string the drones to death when there's nothing left for them to contribute to the hive. The Bolshevist procedure is therefore something quite natural. So this was a quote from, uh, from uh, Adolf Hitler, for example. And uh, uh, and Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitism was also linked with his uh, anti-capitalism uh, very, uh, very much. You can read it in Mein, mein Kampf, and, in, and you can read it as well in his first uh, uh, speeches. Yes, for example, I have here one quote. This was from a speech from Adolf Hitler in 1920, and the topic of the speech was why are we anti-Semites? And uh, I, I quote now, and so you see the parallels between prejudice against uh, Jewish people and against rich people. Now the quote from uh, Adolf Hitler, therefore this capital uh, uh, crew and today rules practically the whole world, immeasurable as uh, to the amounts in this um, gigantic relationships growing and the worst part completely corrupting all honest work because that is the horrible part that the normal human being who today has to bear the burden of the interest on this capital has to stand by and see how despite diligence industry, despite real work, hardly anything is left to him with which only to feed himself and even less to clothe uh, himself at the same time as this international capital devours billions in interest alone, which he has to help pay and so on. So uh, anti-Semitism, Adolf Hitler was also linked with anti-capitalism and it was mm -hmm. uh, often yeah. in, in history. So there's, there's plenty we could continue talking about, but I would encourage readers to, to pick up a copy of your book and, you know, get to some of, some of the other things that are in it. Um, there was one sort of ironic point made at the very, very end of the book, and it's answering the question, like, why is the perception like this? And there's a little bit of like, well, <laughs> the rich are to blame for their own <laughs> perception. Um, can you explain that? Like, what responsibility does the rich have in terms of like, well, you look this way because you don't defend yourself is sort of what I read you saying. Is that right? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think the rich should learn from uh, other minorities. Look, for example, how the attitude changed uh, towards gay people, for example, in the last 50 years, or to, to other groups in our society. How attitudes changed maybe towards 
uh, women or towards black people. And in all these cases, it was the effort of these minorities who did something against uh, these prejudices and stereotypes. There were, for example, a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, Jewish people who did research about uh, anti-Semitism and a lot of uh, women in research about uh, gender uh, prejudice and so. And but rich people, they I think they do almost nothing. They are silent in in our society. They don't don't defend uh, themselves. You see, as an example, uh, my book it uh, cost me a lot of money to commission this uh, poll in four countries. And I had much more research in this book about uh, uh, media stereotypes about rich people. And uh, this was not uh, all my, my own research. I had uh, to commission there uh, this polls and institute. It cost me almost like $150,000 uh, to do this. And I will never earn it with this uh, book, not uh, by far. I, I could finance it because I'm rich uh, myself. Yes, so I could finance it. But I, I had the plan to establish something like an institute for research about this question, about how people become rich and prejudice against rich and all these questions. And I tried to get support from other peop rich people, and I know a lot of rich people, but I got no one who wanted to support it. Maybe it's, uh, it's harder in... Uh, Germany as it is in the United States, because in the United States you have some of these libertarian think tanks. But I can tell you, even, I don't want to mention any name, but even from some of these libertarian think tanks, if I send them the book, one answered me, oh, I don't think that it's a real interesting topic for us because rich people, they, they, there is a lot of reason why there are prejudices against them. Look, they bail out in Wall Street and look what Bill Gates did. And this was not from any leftist people. So it was mm -hmm. from, from li libertarian. Yes. So yeah, where I, right. I would never expect this, that you even have there this uh, prejudice and this uh, uh, stereotypes. And I think rich people should learn from other minorities. If you want to change something, then you have to do something. You have to be, you have to explain people what you are doing. You have to do something to educate people. And I think it's not with one book or one article. I, I hope my book is only the first one and that uh, other people will, will follow because as mentioned before, we have thousands of books about prejudice against other minorities and we have almost nothing about this topic, and I hope it's only the first book. Well, I, I think this might be a good time for you to have that conversation with more libertarians. It might be more opportune because the, the public opinion of wealthy people in the wake of COVID uh, and the shutdowns and the stock market and a whole bunch of other things, uh, you might have some more opportunity. And I'm, I'm glad we at LCI have been able to give you an opportunity to uh, get your message out. We do have a largely United States-based uh, listenership. So I really thank you for being on and, and being able to share your message with our audience. I appreciate very much. I'm I'm so uh, happy. And please, uh, excuse me, you, you see my, my uh, English is not as good as it should be, but hopefully uh, everyone could understand the message. And if not, please read my read my book. You can order it with uh, Emerson. And uh, I hope uh, there will be a discussion about this topic in the United States as well.
Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks again for being on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.